Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 23. So the family, that's Mary and Joseph and Jesus. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said, he will be called a Nazarene. In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. And his message was, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, he is a voice shouting in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. Would you pray with me, please? Precious Father, how sweet it is to stand in this place worshiping you, to hear the songs of praise to you. Amen. And boy, let us tell the world about our Jesus. For all the blessings, for all the times, Lord, just in this week alone that we felt um, maybe we couldn't make it through or maybe the situation was too hard. Boy. And you remind us, just remember my Jesus. You never fail. You keep your promises and you are always there. Thank you for being here this morning, and we don't ever forget, Lord. Thank you for the cross, for your sacrifice. Oh, great Father, beautiful Savior, and Holy Spirit, we love you, and we are here today to worship you, to praise you, to bring you glory, and may we bring a smile to your face as we tell you, we love you, we love you, precious Lord, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Dolly. Love you, baby. Love you. Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. They came and settled in a city named Nazareth. This happened so that what was spoken through the prophets would be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. There is no place in the Old Testament where that phrase is said. Nazareth is never mentioned, the town of Nazareth is never mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. The word Nazarene had become a word of reproach. It was a small town, it was a hick, hick village, and so it was a word of reproach. And so what Matthew is saying is, he's saying to the people that he's writing to, the prophets knew that our master would be scorned. He'll be called a Nazarene. That's a town everybody looked down on. He said that he will be like that. The prophets were saying that the Messiah, when he came, would not be appreciated, would not be understood for what he was. To call somebody a Nazarene was to scorn them. Do you remember in the New Testament? What did Nathaniel, who's from the town of Canaan, not just a few miles away from Nazareth, do you remember what Nathaniel said when he was told that the Messiah had come from Nazareth? Do you remember what he said? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? When Jesus was crucified, what was the title they put over his head? Jesus of Nazareth. Why Jesus of Nazareth? To humiliate him. 
Jerome, one of our greatest early church fathers who translated the Bible into Latin. Jerome, at about the year 400, about the year 400, you got your reference now? At about the year 400, said that in the synagogues, the people made fun of Christians and they cursed them, saying they were Nazarenes. Now this, this speaks to me. When I was in the third grade, my dad accepted a church on the south end of Cape Girardeau, Missouri. I lived on the last street before you entered the slums of Cape Girardeau. There was a little hill that went down called Tollgate Hill where the farmers had come in. You pay a tollgate, come in long before I got there. But I lived on Hackberry Street right here. Sprig Street going right straight south. We were the last street before you went into the slums. The slum was called Smelterville. And I went to May Green School with all the children from the slums. And once I graduated from May Green and went on to uh, junior high school, I would just pray that nobody would ever ask what school I went to in grade school because I was, went to May Green School. I thought I was handling it pretty well until I was asked to preach a youth revival in St. Louis, Missouri. As I went to St. Louis, I preached a youth revival, and lo and behold, the lady who was playing the piano for the revival was also from Cape Girardeau. And so I was talking to her before the service started one night, and she asked me, what, what elementary school did you go to? And I just, I said, May Green. She gasped out loud. It wasn't a small gasp, but it was a big gasp. She said, oh, my parents wouldn't let me drive south of Morgan Oak. Well, Morgan Oak was 10 blocks from Smelterville. I mean, she wasn't even, she wasn't even close. She was, she was and, 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 and so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of laughing with her. I preach the sermon. I get back in the car, and I go home. And the more I think about that little exchange, I can feel my anger rising. And I started talking to myself. We beat your little rich school 55 to nothing in football. <laughs> we skunked you in basketball, smoked you in baseball. Y'all were worried about making grades so people could be doctors and lawyers. We were teaching people how to make money as athletes. You know, we, to this day, I'm glad that none of those thoughts were ever verbalized out loud. That that was all right here. Anybody from Cape? You ever seen anybody from Cape Dry? Say Smelterville. Doesn't know what you're talking about. It was a, it was a slur. It's a slander against your name. They've gone to school to May Green. Well, that's exactly what's happening here. Matthew is saying to the readers, I know what you're going through. I know people make fun of you. I know people call you Nazarenes. They slur you. They say, but I want you to remember. The prophets said that our master, and we're no better than our master, the prophets knew that our master would be looked down on. And so it's interesting, once you know that, once you get that, now, now it becomes interesting to see how Jesus responded to the slur. He scorned their scorn. He took their scorn as a badge of honor. He never said he was Jesus of Bethlehem, the city of David. He never said he was Jesus of Jerusalem, the holy city. After he was resurrected from the grave, he called himself Jesus of Nazareth. When he confronted Paul on the Damascus road, he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth. He used the term that they meant to scorn him, used it as a badge of honor. He was a Nazarene. And the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said, Shall we not be willing to be Nazarenes? For the Nazarene, 
I struggle with scorn. I think anybody who knows me in my 56 years of ministry, all the people who know me and have watched me, they know what my greatest weakness is. I have strengths. I'm not, I'm not trying to be overly humble here. I'm not putting on a show. So I have my strengths. I know what my strengths are. But I also have always known what my greatest weakness was. My greatest weakness has been, from the first, personal soul winning. One-on-one, talking to people about Jesus. I hate scorn. I'm a people person, as you know. Ruthie and I both are. We're people pleasers. And often in your greatest strength, you find your biggest weakness. And the desire to please... I've always been uh, reluctant to share the gospel, to talk to somebody. When I finally got right with God in high school, and the kids would make fun of me, it was tough. I can remember, I, I, I can remember, I can close my eyes, and I can remember, I can hear, hear the words. I hear the sounds. I hear it. And it still hurts me at age 72. And so I stand before you as one who just says, this is a weakness I have. And I also say to you, I was wrong. I have fought it my whole life. My daddy was the greatest personal soul winner I ever knew. How's that for a contrast? My dad was the greatest personal soul winner, one-on-one, I ever knew. And then there comes me, and I fail, and I failed often in that area. And I feel that we must teach our young people, young people, you're going to have to learn how to do this. You're going to have to learn to take scorn because it's not getting better, it's getting worse. You're going to have to learn how to take the abuse and the laughter. They will not scorn our master. Even Pilate said, I find no fault in him. They won't won't make fun of our master. They won't scorn him. So their only hope to fight Christianity is to scorn us, to make fun of us. And we must learn to do a better job than I learned to do Because our master was called Nazarene. And if he took it as a badge of honor, we must learn to do the same. Now, chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Preaching was the job of John the Baptist. Now, he's most famous for baptizing, but the baptizing was merely a result of his preaching. I was named for John the Baptist. My daddy had just started preaching when I was born. He heard me crying. I cried real loud. And my daddy, in a moment of spiritual fervor, said, It reminds me of one crying in the wilderness, so he named named me John for John the Baptist. That's how I got my name. My name is John. And then when I was ordained, my dad preached the ordination sermon, and his sermon was John 1-6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, And he used the traits of John the Baptist to challenge me to be what I ought to be. Now, I want you to notice that he came preaching. Preaching is. Now, listen to me. Listen to me. Pulpit committee, where are you? Raise your hands. Pastor search committee. I still call you pulpit committees. Where are you? All right. Let me remind you. I'm going to remind you. I've told you this before. I'm going to remind you. Preaching is the most important thing your next pastor will do. This is where your pastor will counsel more people than he'll ever counsel anywhere else. Here he will mentor people. Here he will love people. Here he will encourage. Here he will comfort. Right here, this spot, right here, is the most important place where your pastor will ever stand in public. 
right here, you're preaching. Now let me remind you, when I was in seminary, in the Christian history class, I was taught that the four greatest centuries of Christian history are 1, 4, 16, and 19. Those are the four greatest centuries of Christian history, 1, 4, 16, and 19. And right down the hall in the preaching class, I learned that the four greatest centuries of Christian preaching were 1, 4, 16, 19. Christianity rises and falls on its pulpits. The power of Christianity is when a godly man puts the holy book on the sacred desk. A godly man puts the holy book on the sacred desk. And preaching is how many of us define ourselves. I challenge you. I challenge you to find a pastor who was not called to preach before he was called to do anything else. Preaching defines us. That's who we are. That's what we do. We, Ruthie says, she will know that I'm dead when Sunday morning comes around and I don't get up and preach. It just becomes a part of our very nature. I want to preach until I die. I used to say I wanted to die in the pulpit. I wanted to die in the act of preaching. And one of my members came up to me one day and said, Pastor, I was there one time when that happened, and it's really hard on the children. <laughs> so I quit saying that, and I started saying, I'm going to preach till I die. Now, when I die, when I die, when you come to the funeral home to view me, view my body, there's not going to be music in the background unless it's one of Ruthie's piano CDs. No music in the background. It's going to be me preaching. And when they push my casket out of the room with the pallbearers beside it, there's going to be a cassette player or some kind of player on top of it playing, my, playing some of my sermons. I'm going to be preaching as I go out the door, all right? And then, and then, Ruthie says she's going to put McDonald's arches on my grave. That's my favorite restaurant. She's going to put golden arches on my grave. And she's going to put as the inscription, here lies a bookworm being eaten by earthworms. <laughs> And I am going to have an electric eye, an electric eye installed in those golden arches. And every time somebody walks past my grave, I'm going to start preaching. <laughs> and my prayer is that some Friday night, a guy's had a few too many drinks, will trigger that thing and get saved right there on my grave. <laughs> Scare him so bad, he thinks he's going to go to perdition, and right there he'll fall down. We have to preach. Preaching is who we are. Now, that's why, that's why if you've ever known a preacher who fouled out of the ministry, he's miserable till the day he dies. Because there's a call in him to preach. Ruthie, you'd like to tell the story of Henrietta Mears. The lady had so much influence on Billy Graham. Now, this is a side. I'm going to throw this in. I'm not going to charge you any more for this. There was another man the same age as Billy Graham that everybody thought was going to be the greatest preacher in the United States. And there was Billy Graham... This other guy fouled out, completely left the faith, totally. Lee Strobel's found this man 50 years later. And you know about Billy Graham, became the greatest preacher of our time. This friend who was supposed to be better than Billy, Lee Strobel's found him 50 years later. He went to his apartment. He talked to him about life. And he said, well, what, what do you feel that you didn't fulfill that and this man, 50 years after leaving the faith, said, I miss Jesus. 
When God puts it in you, you can't get it out. Preaching is what matters. Just remember that. Preaching. You've got to have a, a man who'll stand right here in this spot and who every Sunday, a godly man, who'll put the holy book on the sacred desk. Now, verse 2, Roman, uh, Romans. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Matthew 3, 2. Let's just uh, catch our context again in verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now we begin to press towards taking the Lord's Supper. Repent is the message that John the Baptist came with. It is the message that Jesus came with. The Bible says he came preaching repent. It is the message the disciples started out with, according to Mark 6, 12. Repent is the message that Peter preached at Pentecost. Repent is the word that Paul used when he summarized his whole ministry in Acts chapter 26. Now watch me. John, Jesus, disciples, Peter, Paul. All of them. The center of their ministry was the word repent. The word repent is a military term. It was used in the Roman army. It's a military term that means right about face. It means you put that foot behind your heel, you swing your body around, you make a 180 degree turn, and you go the exact opposite direction. To repent means that you have a sorrow in your heart for sin. You know you're going the wrong direction. You know you have sinned. You know you are wrong, and to repent is when a changed mind changes behavior. When you say, I'm going to quit this, I'm going to walk away from it. I'm going to turn from the life I'm living. Now, here's the essence of what I want to say before we take the Lord's Supper. You know that Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses on the wall. The most important of the 95 was number one. I'm going to read it to you. Now listen to me real closely. Of the 95 theses, this was number one. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. In other words, what Martin Luther was saying was, that until his day, you did penance. You, you, you might, if you, if you committed a sin, you'd say 10 Hail Mary prayers, or you'd do uh, 25 Our Fathers, or, or you'd give a gift to the church. You, you would do something to compensate for what you had done. And it was Martin Luther who taught us, no, 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 remember, the, word, the key word is not penance, the word is repent. That every day, every second, every part of the Christian life, you live knowing you are a sinner, You live knowing you have not reached perfection yet. And you live your whole life right here repenting, saying, I'm sorry for my sin. I've told you this before, I'm going to tell you again. I have never yet gone to my prayer closet and fallen down on my face before God and tried to name every sin I've committed, repenting, asking to forgive me. I have never yet not gotten up and not been able to think of another sin before I got to the door. Never in my life have I ever tried to pour out every sin I can think of and finally get there. 
Finally think, now I'm totally perfect. Now I've repented of everything. There's always more. And this is what it means to be a Christian. You are yearning for more. You want more. You understand you're a failure in certain areas. You understand you do things you should not do. You understand that the life is lived not in penance, not in making up for things, not in doing something to compensate. You understand that your whole life was one of repentance because John preached it, Jesus preached it, the disciples preached it, Peter preached it, Paul preached it. They all said, repent, repent, repent. You spend your whole life repenting. So now, what is the purpose of what we're getting ready to do right here? This is God's way of commanding us to make sure that every once in a while we ask ourselves the question, am I right with God right now? There are some of you who are not going to take the Lord's Supper today because you have someone you're upset at, someone you've not forgiven somebody you're angry at, as if, as if that's the good thing to do. You double your sin. When you come to the Lord's table and you won't take it because of some sin you've committed, you double your sin. Now you've got this sin, and then you've got the sin of not taking the supper. The purpose of the supper is not to make you feel bad so you don't take the supper. The purpose of the supper is for you to say, I have a sin here, and I'm going to make it right right now. <coughs> So the question that you have to ask yourself today is, am I right with God right now?